We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. This is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About ghostwriting. About heads popping like corks. About the hand jutting out of a lake at the very end. About falling in love with a guy who kind of locks his wife in high places. (laughs) About retreating to the countryside. About hot dads. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, Isabeau and I are discussing... Verity by, I wanted to say veritable, (laughs) Colleen Hoover. Does that make sense? I would say she's much cooler on TikTok than I assumed she would have been, which says more about me than her. (laughs) Yes. Colleen Hoover, Verity. Should I read the back of the book? I would love it if you would do that. Okay, then I will. Lowen Ashley is a struggling writer on the brink of financial ruin when she accepts the job offer of a lifetime. Jeremy Crawford, husband of best-selling author Verity Crawford, has hired Lowen to complete the remaining books in a successful series his injured wife is unable to finish. Lowen arrives at the Crawford home ready to sort through years of Verity's notes and outlines, hoping to find enough material to get her started. What Lowen doesn't expect to uncover in the chaotic office is an unfinished autobiography Verity never intended for anyone to read. Page after page of bone-chilling admissions, including Verity's recollection of the night her family was forever altered. Lowen decides to keep the manuscript hidden from Jeremy, knowing its contents could devastate the already grieving father. But as Lowen's feelings for Jeremy begin to intensify, she recognizes all the ways she could benefit if he were able to read his wife's words. After all, no matter how devoted Jeremy is to his injured wife, a truth this horrifying would make it impossible for him to continue loving her. A standalone romantic thriller from number one New York Times bestselling author Colleen Hoover. That was good. Yeah. I mean, I would preface this episode... Uh, with two things. The first thing is, if you've never listened to our show before, welcome to Womance. Um, we do, we try not to spoil things sometimes, but we always fail. So there will inevitably be spoilers in this episode. And it's not like this book is like a complex house of cards, but 
it is like there is like arguably a deus ex machina you might not see coming and like i would say that there's like a bunch of jump scares just beware that there's we probably won't spoil any jump scares but just beware that we will probably spoil the whole (laughs) yeah i'm like (laughs) book at some point during this episode so if you're planning on reading it go read it and then you know come back and and listen to this later preferably within the first seven days of the episode release or whenever you get to it priest is really climbing our charts for some reason (laughs) years after yeah yet again years after its original release the other thing i would want to lead with uh are trigger warnings yes very important on this text. So we'll do, we'll discuss things probably when we're talking about the book that include like violence against children. And so I'm not really good at <laughs> I'm not really good at trigger warnings. And so in my mind when I read the book, so I bought this book from City Lit Books. Shout out to City Lit Books. Um, which just added a romance section in like the last year. That's not where this book came from. They had it in the suspense section, interestingly enough. That's why I couldn't find it at first. But I got this book. I read it. And I, you know, Isabel and I had planned to talk about it. And I told her like, hey, there's some triggering stuff. Like there's some weird breastfeeding stuff that you might not be into right now. Yeah, I said there's like some weird breastfeeding stuff. But I, in my mind, I told you to look up the trigger wordings because I know I'm bad at them. And then Isabeau did not look up the trigger warnings. To be fair, I don't remember you saying that. But like, also, to be fair, my memory is not in tip-top shape at this moment. So I remember distinctly you saying, there's some weird breastfeeding stuff that maybe you're not down for. And I was like, okay, I'm probably okay. And then I was like, I don't need trigger warnings. And I read it. And it's like, there's way worse stuff than her fucked up feelings about breastfeeding. So are they fucked up? (laughs) Yeah, they are. Genuinely. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, Isabeau is pregnant and there is some pregnancy. There's some abortion stuff. Horror. Self-abortion stuff around child murder specifically. She doesn't even refer to it as a fetus. She refers to it as a child, which makes it worse. So trigger warning on fucked up breastfeeding. Trigger warning on self-managed, poorly, horrific version of abortion. Trigger warning on, as Morgan said, child violence. And um, I would also then say trigger warning on, ooh, um... Violent but consensual postpartum sex. But also kind of violent but consensual sex in general. Oh, and it's like sex between a married person. There's also stuff about like disability. There's stuff about um, paraplegism. Is that the word? Anyway, there's some really fucked up stuff. I I would broadly put this under body horror subcategory pregnancy being a young mom woman. So I I wanted to read this because I I enjoy a good horror novel, and I heard on the TikToks people being like, wow, this book is shocking. If you're a horror fan, it's probably not that shocking to you. But that's different than why I don't think her breastfeeding stuff is that fucked up. So we'll come back to that probably. But yeah, so Verity is about Lowen, who is a struggling suspense author living in New York City. After her mother dies, her mother had her, like, take care of her, promising, like, some kind of... uh, Financial reward that never materializes. Yeah, and she's like, not that I would have 
not taking care of my mother, but I probably would have spent money differently. So now she's broke, and then she gets called into her ex-boyfriend slash agent's office and has offered the opportunity to ghostwrite for Verity Crawford. On her way to this mysterious meeting, very beginning of the book, uh, she witnesses a pedestrian get ran over by a car, like blood splattering uh, all over her shirt. Uh, and a fellow pedestrian comes over to her and asks if she's okay. And he just happens to be a dashing man who then literally offers her the shirt off of his back when he finds out that she's late for a meeting. Guess what? They're going to the same meeting. This is Jeremy Crawford. Stand-up guy offering the shirt off his back, walked her into a Starbucks, and then locked the door behind him. Which she points out, because this is in first person, could have been creepy and murdery after this event, but turns out she just was comforted by him locking the door so no one would walk in on her in her brassiere as she dabs the blood off of her face and chest. Which is an interesting little bit of foreshadowing because it turns out Jeremy is locking doors all over the place to protect the women he loves. All the time. Yeah. The titular Verity is actually the author who is largely um, mostly just a presence in the novel. So... After a tragic accident, she's left uh, supposedly catatonic. Um, She's cared for around the clock uh, in her palatial family country home. In Vermont. So Jeremy Crawford and Verity Crawford, that's very much like a Southern Gothic name. Mm -hmm. But Verity doesn't write horror, which I expected based on the name Verity Crawford. She writes suspense. And then they also don't live in the South. They live in Vermont. Mm -hmm. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like once you get into like that kind of old genteel wealth, like Verity Crawford or Jeremy Crawford, like that also felt like very Martha's Vineyard. I imagined him wearing polos with like the little whale on it. Vineyard vines. They're not really old money, though. No, they come into Verity's money. When she becomes a runaway success. Yeah. So speaking of authors becoming runaway successes, Colleen Hoover. Has become a runaway success? Well, I think she's been one. I didn't realize she's published 23 novels. I would say without me realizing it, she's gotten like this signature cover look. Like, you know, a Colleen Hoover book when you see it. I've tried, I tried to read Regretting You, um, and I didn't really get into it. I got the sample on Amazon. Um, and then I tried to read It Ends With Us. I don't know if I finished the sample, but neither really gripped me, but they're super popular. Have you read any of her other books? No, but I've seen them at airports. Yeah, I think she's pretty ubiquitous. And what's interesting is I didn't really know a ton about Colleen Hoover Besides people on my personal For You page talking about Verity and other people had asked me if I read her when they found out I had a romance podcast and I'd be like, oh no, I just, you know, and it's not like I felt like her books were bad. It was just one of those things where like, I couldn't really get into, like I couldn't get enough like fire in my engine to like commit to seeing it through. And so I, I was really excited about Verity conceptually. And what struck me when I first started reading it was that the um, main character is a writer. 
And so we're getting her perspective. And then the other kind of interstitial chapters of this book are an unpublished autobiography manuscript by Verity, also told in first person. And so it's two Mm -hmm. sides of the same writer's writing about writer's writing (laughs) coin. And I think it's not a profession we actually see that often in romance, our writers. That's true. They're mostly like bakers or like... Party planners. Planners or event planners. Duchesses. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. But no, I think romance writers don't really write about themselves, which... Mixed blessing. Well, they don't write about writers. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's not because of that, like, looming idea that everyone in romance hates, which is self-inserts. I think that there's a lot of, like, fear of being called out as, like, a Mary Sue or something. And so I think, like, putting in a main character, let alone two main characters who are both writers, I think would be, like, pretty I think, do you think that's why we don't see a lot of writers? Like, it feels too obvious. It feels too close to the bone. I think writers love to write about writers. I don't know why we don't. I think you're right to say that, like, romance authors are accused of Mary Suing enough as it is, even when they're writing about a duchess, that both the temptation and the potential fallout is, like, probably too much. That doesn't stop them from writing real person fic, but... Yeah. I I also don't think it actually stops them from (laughs) self-insertion. Yeah, I I mean, it's just by another name. It's not as, like, obvious. I think because romance is a place where you talk about fantasy and desire, it's really hard to write about someone else's fantasies and desires for, like, for the purposes of romance, which is, like, to feel good. I don't know. What do you think? I'm trying to think of the writers that I have seen in romance, and there's there are a lot of journalists. There are a lot of would-be lady journalists in historicals who, like, need to break in in a man's world. Laura Lee Gerke has a good one that I like. Yeah, but it's never, it's never this. It's never a suspense writer writing about suspense writers who are also trying to ghostwrite another suspense writers. Like, this is kind of a nesting doll version of that, which both gives distance, but also, like, an insane, intimate proximity. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I, so I saw some things in this book, especially in, like, the first couple of chapters from Lowen's perspective, where she's talking about, like, how she's not good at social media. And she tells this, she provides this anecdote about also not wanting to do public events, about how someone came to one of her signings and she was really exhausted at her signing. And then the reader wrote to her saying that she was a bitch and that they would never buy her books again. And it was so specific so as to seem, like, true. Like, this really happened. Like, it also had that kind of concentrated, like, First this happened, then this happened, and then they sent me. It just felt like someone, it didn't feel like a fabrication, you know? No, I totally agree. And then then the opposite version of that happens with Verity's character, where she loves the limelight, and she really likes interacting with fans, and she really likes doing social media, and has like an entire publicist team. And while that felt less lived in and less true, based on the two TikToks you've shown me, It seems like Colleen Hoover, you know, 
at least is doing the work. So I don't think Verity ever says that she likes doing publicity. I think she's just comfortable with it. Lowen says she likes it and Jeremy says she likes it. You're right. It's not in the autobiography of Verity's voice, but two other people say that she likes it. She yeah, likes it. but I think like, how would Lowen know? That's true. Other than watching someone be successful at it. Yeah, exactly. And then you would just assume that they like it, right? Because she's telling herself she's bad at it because she doesn't like it. But I think, I think more than that, so I had this like, oh, this seems a little too true. But then I realized I have those moments all the time when I'm reading romance. Like we had moments like that when we were reading uh, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte where it was like, oh, God, you're just telling me about yourself now, Charlotte Bronte. And, like, those moments come up not just in romance. They come up, like, I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is, like, the clear. Stieg Larsson was one of the most successful Mary Sues of our era. But there's a lot of them. Um, There are times when you're reading, like, Lolita that I'm like, well, this isn't Humbert Humbert anymore. (laughs) But that also seems to be the thing that writers are, like, the most defensive about, professional fiction writers, is that, oh, I'm not writing about myself. And in fact, like, that's sort of one of the hinge points of this novel is whether writers are purely fabricating these characters and experiences, right? Like, or if they are really just writing themselves and, like, molding the character slightly different. Yeah, another version of that is when Lowen says that she knows a writer who always uses her husband's name until as a placeholder until she comes up with a character name. And I was like, woof. Yeah. That seems like someone told you that at a conference. And it seems like a really bad idea because, like, if you're talking about John, how do you talk about anyone other than John? You don't. I think romance is especially defensive about this, and I think it's kind of, like, a larger symptom of the fact that, like, romance is, like, this is serious. Women, like not just women's, but like people's desires and pleasures and longing to be loved and seen is serious. But at the same time being like, well, I'm not like, I'm not personally saying that like, that's cool or whatever, you know? Yeah, I think there's like a defensive crouch that romance is often in for lots of reasons, not the least of which is the Mary Sue call out. Deeg Larson, from what I remember of his Mary Sue call out, was just totally unbothered by it. Yeah. Well, he was dead. Um, but I. <laughs> That's right. I he don't think dead. it's a very commonly accepted thing. I think there's like a couple articles about it. I don't think there's been like a call out. I think it's just generally understood by people who can critically think when they read. Like it's just a little too much. But I also think like a lot of people don't even want to address the idea. That's a possibility. And I think that's so interesting because it's like, well, anything you write would be a product of your own mind. It's not like some third party is like beaming these ideas into your head. Like it's all got to be piecemealed based on like other characters you've read or people you know or yourself or some guy, right? Like you have to get inspired and the common denominator of that inspiration is you. I think the fear of the Mary Sue call out is what I would call like the William Shatner call out, right? Like William Shatner was never any other character other than Captain Kirk with the possible exception of his character in Miss Congeniality. Like everything that William Shatner has ever done is like William Shatner. And if you get called a Mary Sue often enough, 
or that you are Mary Suing in your books. Like, I think the fear is like a lack of imagination or like potential like talent. Yeah. Well, I think like that's the thing, though. There's no imagination without you as the common denominator. But at the same time, like I've been socialized to think that. So I get like nervous and like hemming and hawing whenever I read that thing about social media and that explicit. I'm like, why? Why are we doing this? And I'm one of those people who like I would say writer is probably one of the most common professions in fiction. And I hate it. I'm like, why are we always like writing about writers writing? Because it's so interesting and so internal and so full of deep thought. It's like, of course, writers think that this is like the most interesting career because they've chosen to seek it out to its like most improbable conclusion, which is doing it professionally. So I think they tend to think that like everyone else is like somehow like not being creative or like not struggling like they, the writer, are. And like, I don't know. That's just, I have a lot of, uh, there's actually, Richard Iowate wrote a book about uh, View from the Top that talks about this better and more articulately than I do and why it happens. But I think romance especially has like a a deep-seated concern. And I wonder, do you think this book has a deep-seated concern with being a Mary Sue? No. I think that's one of the failures of this text. I think that the nesting doll version of this, which puts you in immediate proximity of writers writing about writers writing, and then having it funneled through another writer, which gives us distance, quote unquote. I think that was the structural solve. But what it just did is just gave me like, being trapped in a funhouse mirror of writers writing about writers writing. And I was just like, this is just a lot of writers writing. <laughs> See, that's interesting. I don't think of I don't think of Lowen's story as talking about Verity writing. Oh man. The way that she like unpacks her desk and like goes through her notes and is reading her books. And I really I did appreciate the discussion of close reading and like the notes that she's leaving for herself as a writer about trying to find Verity's voice. Like those craft comments about like what it would be to be a ghostwriter I found fascinating in their own way but like that that felt like Lowen investigating another writer so I took so I understood the book the events of the book as Lowen gets there and she discovers that Verity in fact has no outlines and has no notes about her future books and so Verity does close readings of the books that have been published like you said and makes those craft notes but her only kind of notes or manuscripts from Verity that she has is the autobiography. And I think she's judging her more as a person than as a writer as she's working through that autobiography. Certainly as she's working through the autobiography, but before she finds the autobiography, when she's reading the books and making the notes, she also makes comments about like, God, how do you get... Because like Verity's shtick and why she's a famous suspense writer is because she writes from the perspective of the villain and and by the end of the first book that she's Lowen has read of Verity she's like Jesus this is pretty fucked up and I write suspense as well there are like notes in boxes like on napkins and stuff and like all of it is really disorganized which is why the manuscript of the autobiography becomes so important 
And it's also a physical copy, not a digital copy. I think that one of the things that's, I think, actually pretty important about finding the autobiography is that I don't think Lowen describes it or understands it as important to her work. I think she sees it as a distraction and a problem Mm -hmm. and basically as like titillating reading for her at one point. Not unlike suspense and romance, except way more intense. Because it's like real person fic. Like at one point she's looking for sex scenes between Verity and Jeremy. Yeah. When we are in Lowen's perspective experiencing Verity... I think it's experiencing Verity as a reader, not as a writer. And Verity talks almost not at all about writing in her autobiography. She's She talks about writing while Jeremy is out of town writing the first book and then him reading it and being like excited about it and her realizing it could be a thing. And then that's pretty much it. She refers to it almost exclusively as her work. Yeah, while she's writing, yeah. There's the scene in New York with the editor and then, like, the move to Vermont and her window so that she can watch Jeremy. Lowen as reflecting much. I I do remember her saying, like, noting Verity's shtick and noting that it's, like, very upsetting. Uh, Lowen also talks about how she sometimes scares herself in her own writing process. Uh, when she's writing suspense. And it it does kind of read as like a, a struggle to find inspiration. Although she does, she is ultimately successful. She gets her outline knocked out. Both of them are ultimately s- successful writers, which is also weird because like, I think you're right. Just, Lowen is experiencing Verity as a reader. Because we're experiencing Verity as a reader, because it's epistolatory, basically. But what's weird and interesting about it are, like, she has a few rationalizations, right? Where she's like, no, I have to learn as much about her voice so I can write her authentically as whatever. But, like, that's immediately tagged as a rationalization. What's interesting about writers writing about writers that actually aren't writing about writers (laughs) is that these are, like, the we're already at the outcome. Verity writes about being successful, then thinking about what that success has brought her. A big house and all this stuff. And Lowen writes about being not successful and what that has brought her, which is poverty and a bad boyfriend with her good agent. And so, like, it's not about writing. It's about, like, the trappings of versions of writers. Verity and Lowen come to the house differently. But I think they're both kind of suspended in an ether once they arrive there. Like, Lowen doesn't even have an address anymore. She's just there until she gets an address. Like, it's definitely a liminal space. And it's like Verity is kind of in a liminal space between like living and dying. Except the house is peopled with Verity and like the memories of Verity's family and like they're... Well, but memories. Yeah, but also like material memories, right? So like they... Jeremy puts Lowen in the first floor master bedroom and there are teeth marks all over the master bed head. There are teeth marks, but there are no teeth, which is like being dead. I mean, she still has her teeth, but that's what I mean by liminal space. I just felt like the space was peopled by Verity. Yeah, but like a ghost. <laughs> yeah, but like less liminal. Like the, the house itself felt very much like Thornfield to me. 
haunted, certainly, but like there's someone alive in here. That's interesting. So can you tell me more about that? So Verity is alive. She's in this vegetative state in the bedroom upstairs where Jeremy and their only living child crew sleep. So then he puts Loen in the master downstairs with the teeth marks, but that is also directly below Verity, so she can, Loen can hear the hospital bed move, which felt very much like Jane sleeping below the third floor where she can hear sounds and stares that she has been told is like Grace Poole. That's like standard haunted house stuff, though. Okay. I, like, the house felt both lived in and haunted. It like it felt like Thornfield. Like it felt like its own space. Like not like a liminal space. Like not like the ocean or something. So to me, I'm like hearing it's like a haunted house, but it's haunted by a living person. Mm-hmm. Because all like her stamp is all over it. Like these floor to ceiling windows because like Yeah, yeah. I so yes, I understand. It's haunted by a living person. I I get that. I don't understand how that's like, to me, that feels liminal because it feels like it's suspended between two states. You're either like a house occupied by living beings exclusively, or you're a haunted house occupied by living beings plus a dead being. But here we are in the middle where it's occupied by a living being, but they aren't having like a direct, they're not having like um. Like, they're not dead. So you still have to, like, account for them. And there's even that scene where the, ne- where the nurse calls out Loen for not speaking about Verity, speaking to Verity, speaking around Verity, like she's not there. I guess for all of those reasons, that's why it didn't feel like a liminal space. It felt like Verity's space that Loen had come into. Like, I was also never convinced that Verity was in the state that she was ostensibly in, like... I clocked that pretty early. So tell me about Thornfield. So like Thornfield, Charlotte Bronte is doing the same thing that this book is doing, which is pulling on tropes of like haunted houses to make you feel uneasy. The difference re-haunting would be that the suspicion is that the person is alive, not that the person is dead. Whereas in... Jane Eyre, at least in the beginning, the suspicion is that there's some kind of being from beyond that is causing this stuff to happen. I just never got the sense that the creepy things that were happening in the house weren't Verity. So, which makes sense, because we're supposed to believe that Verity is doing the creepy things in the house. That's what the book wants us to think. But I'm saying it's a liminal space because Loen comes into it, right? She herself is in a transition career-wise. She's also in a transition living situation-wise. Sure. And likewise, Verity appears to be in a transition herself, a really drawn-out death. Sure. I think both of these women are maybe liminal spaces themselves, which is why, like, the movement happens the way that it does but like the house isn't the space that felt liminal to me like that isn't the 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 transition space between them if anything it might even be jeremy can you speak to that 
Jeremy feels more liminal to me than the house because his details are less defined. And they're less defined because the house is so well defined by Verity. And Jeremy is certainly defined by Verity in her autobiography, but he's also, we are experiencing him in real time with Lowen. But he sort of functions in this strange in-between then of like, we know a lot about what Verity thinks his sexual appetites are and like that he's good dad, capital G, capital D, but that he's like easily manipulated potentially. But like that doesn't seem to be the experience that Lowen is having with this man. And so then that creates this like liminal tension of like, I see how Verity and Lowen were interacting through their depictions of Jeremy as a space rather than the house itself, which felt so very much like Verity. So what's the difference between Lowen's experience of Jeremy and what we see of Verity's experience of Jeremy? Because I think Lowen does think he's a good dad. Capital G, capital D. Lowen does think he's sexy and she does see the like literal evidence of the kind of sex that Verity was describing, excuse me, in the home. I think she sees him less malleable, somehow more vulnerable. I can see that. Like uh, Verity seeing him as like a tool and she seeing him as like uh, a victim of Verity. Right. But that's just informed by Verity's text. Yes. Not only is he a victim of Verity, but like the places he chooses to stand up for or maneuver Lowen are interesting. Like there's that scene at the Target with the waspy ladies and he gets a dig in, which then counter informs the idea of Verity's telling that he's just like this big, beautiful, dumb lug. Um, So in those ways, like just those small ways, right? Like Jeremy isn't even really fully fleshed out. Like, again, we don't really know who his parents are or like what his deal is or like pretty much anything about his ambitions. And that's why he feels more liminal to me than the house itself. See, I always took it like I, I felt like he was fully fleshed out by both Verity and Lowen. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we know a lot about his family, but I think like his ambition was to be a father and to be a family man. Maybe. And I, I don't think like that's the thing. Like, I don't think the big twist ending works unless you believe that you have a really clear understanding of who Jeremy is to have it flipped over. Like if 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 Jeremy isn't fleshed out, then I think that's like a whoopsie on the part of the book. I think the book makes every effort to give you a really clear and singular idea of Jeremy. It's just the way Verity sees him tells you something about Verity and the way Lowen sees him tells you something about Lowen, but he is like a fully formed creature. But then is he like that final? I just don't think that final letter works if the book isn't creating intentionally like a really clear idea of who Jeremy is. I don't think that final letter works. Well, I'm saying it doesn't function at all without having something to upend. So that's why the book is creating something to upend. I didn't feel like it did a good enough. I don't think Jeremy's a liminal space. <laughs> okay. Again, like, you know, we can have. But you think the house isn't a liminal space. The house is a container for liminal spaces. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Isn't a liminal space where people are when they're between things? Yeah, and I feel like all of the people in the book are between things. Like they Yeah, and they're all in the same space. Right, but like I'm just trying to understand. I guess I'm doing a bad job of explaining it. I just feel like the house has boundaries. Liminal spaces don't have as good of boundaries. The house is very bound. The people in the house are not bound because they are in transition, right? Which is normal for people in liminal spaces. (sighs) All right, dude. I don't feel like the house is a liminal space. I feel like the people are liminal spaces inside a very bound house. Well, so do you feel like the deaths take place in the house that take place on the, like, lake? No. Okay. See, I feel I would feel like they they do take place in the house. The lake is not the house. I think it's like a really interesting idea, so I want to explore it more. I like I think it's like a way cooler sounding concept that the people are liminal spaces inside a container for liminal spaces. But I just see the house as being like like I I do see it as having like those soft boundaries, right, with the lake and the fact that it's like in the middle of nowhere, right? It's isolated. I guess the house feels as structured to me as like the house in not the haunting of Hill House, but Bly Manor. That one, the Netflix adaptation where it's like you know what parts of the house are creepiest. Like, there's the part where they're going down into the basement and the basement locks from the inside. And I'm like, okay, so this is a Chekhov's gun. Something bad is going to go down with the basement. And there's going to be, like, whatever. And, like, then we get, like, the floor-to-ceiling windows in the office. And Lowen spends a lot of time in the office. And so, like, the office is, like, this scene both of seeing and being visualized, right? There are, like, all those scenes where, like, Verity is staring at her or she's Lowen is staring at Jeremy. The boundaries of the house itself were so well defined for me, like where the kitchen was, what was safe or the entrances and in and outs of the kitchen, how that was working as a dynamic, where the bedrooms were in relation to each other. Like the house itself had really set rules. Liminal spaces, in my understanding of them, especially as we're thinking about like an ocean or like a big space, like where you can unbind yourself, right? Lowen and Lowen shows up already unbound. She doesn't have an address. She doesn't have a paycheck. She can't pay like her first month's rent. Like she is deeply in transition. Jeremy is grieving, which is a kind of emotional liminal space. Crew is five. I would argue that childhood is one long liminal space. And Verity, who I understood as both the haunter and the haunted, and doing the active haunting, like she's every verb version of that word, right? She's past, present, and future haunting. I also understood as in a moment of like transition because I was waiting for her reveal. So so what I'm hearing is that a liminal space is the transition. It's not a space where transition happens. I mean, it can be. It can be which which one? It can be a space where transition happens, like childhood as a long liminal space. Lots of transitions happen there. But like a liminal space is like neither nor, right? Like that's its whole thing. But my understanding and why I'm 
feel like the house is more bound and like has very specific non-liminal space rules is because the characters themselves are the open vistas. The house is the closed space. Like the house is the canvas. Jeremy isn't so much in transition as he is like an idea, like a vapor. Yes, I believe Jeremy is a vapor caught between two different women. Do you think, so that would be like a very meta thing to have like, to have like, we already talked about writers writing about writing, right? And also like there are these specific references that feel especially true to like (laughs) writing in the, in our current moment, right? With the social media references and the being able to sell yourself more than you're able to sell a book, even though Verity's books are supposedly like very, very good. So she doesn't really, they like, uh, Lowen finds out that she won't even have to really do publicity because the book's Verity has already been such a, so, but Ver- Verity is still very good at publicity or successful at it. Okay. There's that kind of meta part of it because that's super true. And I think that's especially true for romance. Like, I don't see, maybe it's because I'm not like in it as much, but like, I don't see authors from other genres having to sell it so hard on social media. Like, it, but romance writers are out there every day slinging ass to get those romance novels, so pre, those Kindle pre-orders. And like, so that's so that's one point of meta-ness. I think it's also super meta. And I think you're right, actually. I think I've been convinced. Jeremy is a vapor that ultimately is positioned as potentially like utterly perfect ideal man as he's been set up previously or vengeful monster and those are kind of the two sides of uh you know kind of classic romance hero in that case if that's the point then i would say the final deus ex machina letter is pretty successful as like wrapping up this concept of like being a meta meditation a meditation (laughs) on romance that's good i like that is is that what this book set out to do, though? Uh, yeah, that's the thing, though. Because if it did, like, it sounds like that's what you got from it. I don't think, but here's the other thing. Colleen Hoover as an idea, there are lots of people who read Colleen Hoover. She's like Nora Roberts. People yeah. say they read her, but they would be like, oh, I don't read romance, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, that's what that is. That's what you're reading. There are lots of people who read Verity, and I remember, like, okay, I did come into this with a thesis statement before I even read the book, which was people who are like, wow, this is horrific for a romance novel are just people who haven't read romance novels. Um, and it's not totally wrong. Like there's some I think there's some uh, some real uh, jump scares, like you put it. I think there's some real like. Gory bits. Yes, there are. But I actually but I I think a lot of what's happening in here is like pretty normal romance stuff like one soft sensitive bookish gal is taken to the house of a of you know a mysterious man good dad or this is also kind of a gothic romance almost right because we have like the house the isolated house which haunted houses are liminal spaces but whatever and then (laughs) maybe they're just big containers for them i feel Uh, so respected and seen (laughs) I'm trying to lighten it up. Mm-hmm. And she's like, so she's, um, okay, so we get to like the haunted house, right? 
And then um, we have this like villainous woman who is like pure evil. And how do we know she's pure evil? She doesn't want to be a mom. (laughs) It's not just that she doesn't want to be a mom. It's that she doesn't want to be a mom because then Jeremy's love will be in competition. Okay. It's like a specific possessive ownership of Jeremy specifically that makes her bad mom capital B, capital M. I think, yeah, but I think, like, the framework is, like, the ultimate evil, like, the ultimate evil she can pursue in uh, wanting to be with Jeremy is to want him to not be a father, to not share that affection, but specifically with his children. I mean, I have... Like, I think the I think that puts a really fine point on it. That she doesn't want to share Jeremy with his own children. Yeah. Like, she doesn't want to share Jeremy, period. But the book makes the point that she is incited towards violence because the children are the threat of the thing that he – or the share threat. (laughs) I mean, I I felt like that was such a hackneyed version of bad mom. Because I'm like, you're 27 – when they get pregnant, I'm like, nobody even talked about a perfectly safe and legal abortion in New York. Yeah. Well, she tells Jeremy that she's pregnant, thinking that they would get an abortion, and then he's very excited about it, right? Isn't that what happens? He was super happy, but then, like, they don't talk about, like, they don't talk as a couple about, A, the fact that they weren't using any contraception. They don't talk about as a couple, because, like, they get... She didn't think she could get pregnant. Why didn't she think she could get pregnant? What goes into it? How to Blah, blah, blah. Because they get pregnant the night he proposes. Mm, Okay. Here she is talking about how she keeps her body hot. Um, yeah. Well, truly. That's how you know she's a real villain. At first, after we found out that the night we got engaged became the night we conceived, I was actually happy. I was happy because Jeremy was happy. I thought their birth control method... And at that point, other than my breasts looking better than ever, I didn't realize how detrimental the pregnancy was going to be to the machine I'd worked so hard to maintain. So she's also angry at being a mother because it's destroying her body. Bad mom. Yeah, so she doesn't decide that she doesn't want to be pregnant until she starts showing. And that's when she starts trying to take sleeping pills and self-abort in other ways. Right. And I think, like, the fact that she didn't know herself well enough earlier... I mean, she's only 27, I guess. I guess I can... Okay. I was like... But also, like, that idea that she couldn't get pregnant, I don't remember that. I do remember that one of their main methods of birth control is the pull-out method. And I'm like, this is stupid. This is stupid. You're going to get pregnant, you stupid, stupid people. Yeah, I think you can be that stupid at 27, though, when you're in love. I guess, but it's not love. It's truly obsession. And we know that by this point. Yeah. But isn't that even, like, worse that she, like, decides that she doesn't want her children... Because they're going to ruin her body. Like, that's the first time she decides that she's going to try and get rid of them. Yeah, but, like, that's, again, like, the bad mom capital B. Like, I just, like, I felt like the auto... I felt like the autobiography was trying too hard in that moment to make me hate her. Yeah. And then we get all this stuff about, like, 
how her mom told her that like one of the only ways that she'd ever be loved is through her physical self. So then like we get this like hint of trauma about Verity's fucked up youth. And then it immediately like turns back into I can't let these babies because she's pregnant with twins. I can't let them ruin my body. And I was just like, <sighs> but I, but here's the thing: like we get that Deus ex machina, which, if we can just talk about it frankly, so this is where the like real spoilers happen. At the end of the novel, Verity, Verity is dead because Jeremy finds her manuscript and discovers that she killed her children on purpose or killed one of her kids on purpose, and he murders her himself and then he and Loan cover up the murder and go to live happily ever after. They return to the home after it's sold and Loan finds a letter hidden under the floorboards written by Verity who is just pretending to be catatonic this whole time. Which we know when they kill her. And uh, we discover that she had written it just before she was murdered by Jeremy and it basically explains that like the autobiography you found was a writing exercise because after I wrote my first novel, I thought I'd never be able to identify with my villains and then not be successful anymore. And then my editor told me about this writing exercise where you write from the pers- write as yourself as the worst version of yourself. An antagonistic journal exercise. Yes, she's like baroquely evil, right? In her autobiography. But then it's like there's not like that the writing in the letter of revelation is also kind of hacky. I think like you kind of gestured towards it, but for with the, you know, mother her mother being evil, right? Like but to me I'm like, okay, you have to have a villain uh origin story. For me the breastfeeding stuff is way more like of a window into like an actual person's anxieties and almost justifiable situation because Verity doesn't want to breastfeed and everyone in the room looks at her like she's an asshole for not wanting to breastfeed and so then she tries to breastfeed here's the thing like lots of women don't want to breastfeed and lots of people look at them like they're assholes (laughs) because they don't want to breastfeed yes as this as this baby formula shortage has shown all of us we don't treat moms very well. No. And so, like, I'm curious because early on you said you felt like the breastfeeding thing was truly awful or... It, it's an awful scene for all of the reasons. Like, I feel bad for everyone in it. Like, I think what was much harder for me was the coat hanger abortion she tries to give herself. Okay. Sure. Like, that was insane. That was like, whew. That's that. Well, but that's like self harm as well. Yeah, it is deeply. And then one of the babies has the scar. And then like, oh God, I like I don't even know if I want to talk about it on the podcast. But like, then to verify whether or not this was a thing that happens to babies un- that like undergo violent self abortions and live, it's like yeah, you can disfigure a fetus and baby in the womb and fucking low and Google image searched it, which meant that it's out there. And then I like, I had to think about it being out there and I was like, Oh, did not need that in my brain pan. But the scene about the breastfeeding, I think the thing that I found most objectionable is that rather than like centering on self of like, I don't want to breastfeed because I don't want my body to function like that. And like, that's, it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. I also just don't want to. 
that's all fine. But the fact that it's centered on like Jeremy's sexual consumption of her and that she wants to maintain his sexual consumption of her. Yeah. Rather than this other consumption. It's like the fact that like she centered it on Jeremy was the thing that I found most objectionable. Like if she had just been like, I don't want to. That would have been fine. But the fact that she's like, Jeremy will never see me the same way. I'm like, Ugh. Well, so what pre, but what precedes her thinking about that kind of how Jeremy sees her is that Jeremy says, hey, mama, to her when she wakes up. And she says, please don't call me that. I just needed to get used to this, to being a mother. And I think what is happening is that there, like, there's just enough happening in this scene around the breastfeeding that I think is true. Like, as a woman, when you have a child, you still want... Your own identity. Yeah, as a person who has a child, you still want to be thought of as, like, a sexual being. Like, you're not just a parent, you know? And so for your sex partner to refer to you as a parent, that would be suck but i think it's one of those things that like people aren't allowed to like that's also frowned on to be like oh like i don't want my like people would think she was an asshole if she was like i hate it when he calls me mama because i don't want him to think of me that way you know and then we transition into after that she's like um she's she decides she's gonna try breastfeeding and then she feels wrong when she sees Jeremy watching her breastfeed for the first time. How could he find my breasts attractive after seeing babies feed from them every day? And that's a very real anxiety that people have. And people say stuff like you're, especially when it comes to like heteronormative relationships, like your husband shouldn't be in the delivery room, the husband stitch, because you don't want to have like a different kind of body after you deliver a child getting your post-baby body back. Like, everything in this scene is something that's, like, very real, very true. Because she is, like, a villain. Vil- capital V-I-L-L-A-I-N. Because she's a villain, she takes it to this, like, extreme. But maybe it's because she's a villain, but also because as a villain, she's not very self-aware. Maybe. And it's just, like, it felt like she was centering, even for a villain, was centering too much of her self and identity as Jeremy's sex object, which is the thing that I found objectionable. It wasn't even, like, her loss of, like, her identity with her own body. It was, like, for Jeremy, which I found really fucked up. And then the other thing about it is, like, as a person who's growing a fetus, your boobs change a fuck ton before you even start breastfeeding like yeah well she says like early on in her pregnancy she was pretty cool with it because like her breasts looked great and she had not like never thought about how her body would change in other ways and so the breasts are a real sight of uh of character (laughs) arcing for verity i'm just saying that by your third trimester your boobs do not look the same as they did in the first and so for her to be like Like, you already go through the transition. Like, I don't know. I mean... Like, you already don't feel like your breasts are your breasts? No. They, like... They, like... It's amazing how much they change in the sense of, like, oh, now they have a utility. These don't feel like my boobs anymore. These feel like udders. And I don't really love that. Yeah. But I also, like... 
I don't not love it because I don't think John will ever find my boobs attractive again. Like that's not it's it's the conversation of like my body has transmorphed very quickly. It's a short amount of time. You know, those transformations take time. And like the fact that she was like cool with like the way her nipples were in her third trimester, the fact that it's not mentioned in the book, I'm just like, "Mm -mm." a woman this body obsessed would be upset about her nipple size in the third trimester. But I think, you know, she might have been. She might have been. We don't know. It's not on the page. But I think like at the same time, like Jeremy is the person she's chosen to objectify her body for, not the twins. And yet she, I think there is a scene of objectification of her body where she doesn't want the twins to breastfeed. She's not into it. But they're like, oh, the baby needs it. Breast is best, right? And then it's like, okay, so I guess like these aren't my breasts. These are breasts for the baby now. Right. That's definitely the implication of the nurse who comes in where she's like, it looks like you've got a good supply. And then Jeremy, good dad, is like, no, we'll take the formula. And then she's like, and I loved him all over again because he defended me and like blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. But he wanted her to breastfeed. I mean, that's an implication. But he also recovers pretty quickly, like, you know, because... He is the vapor of just good person. Are you breastfeeding? No, I said immediately. I wanted her to prance right back out of there, referring to the nurse. Jeremy looked at me, concerned. Are you sure? There are two of them, I replied. That's a really good point. I didn't like the look on Jeremy's face, like he was disappointed in me. I hated to think this was how it was going to be, him taking their side, me not mattering anymore. Yes, what a weird frame. Yeah, it's weird to frame it that way, but like, it seems like he had a narrative of what she was going to do without ever talking to her about it. She also didn't talk to him about it, right? Like, that's... She didn't think the babies were going to be born. But like, once the failed coat hanger abortion didn't work, like, you get to the point where, like, they're gonna be there. Like, they watch you very closely in your third trimester. Excuse me. Um, so like, but like this goes back to like the whole thing about birth control. Like they're only using the pullout method. Like they just don't talk to each other at all. Like she's just constantly doing stuff and thinking that she doesn't want to be replaced as number one by the children. Yeah. But like it would have been reasonable for her to be like, hey, there are two of them. I don't think I'm going to breastfeed. Like, A, I don't want to do it. B, I have all these other reasons. Like, I don't want to. Like, let's have conversations like married adults. So Verity is obviously a bad person via the autobiography. I think the real question here is whether or not that final letter is true. And what I'm saying is we can see through that breastfeeding scene something that feels less hacky, something that feels like understandable. And I think also if you take Verity at her word in the autobiography, like she's a very inherently broken person. She's also a very inherently young person. Um, And we do know, truthfully, that she came from a super religious conservative background and was not supported by her family. And so I think the question becomes like, and I I don't think the book necessarily, like I think this book might be smarter than I originally felt when I read it. Because I don't think the book is giving me the final letter is true, the autobiography is true. Which, if the final letter is true, then Jeremy is an inherently bad murderer. 
Like, there's inexcusable. He wasn't avenging his daughter's death, nothing at all. But it's also interesting, like, Verity doesn't, while she attempts to abort her children, she does awful things to her children. My worst scene was thinking about her going to sleep and leaving the babies to cry all day. That was pretty horrific, but... Ugh, God. Yes. Then she only feeds them once, and you're supposed to feed a newborn every four hours, and Jeremy leaves, and so they're so tired from crying all day that she feeds them right before he gets home and gets dinner started, and he's like, you're handling it so well. And then, like, that's another thing that was hard for me, where it's like, that's impossible. They wouldn't have been gaining weight. So is the end letter true? And if the end letter true, like, so it's like, if the autobiography is true, then Jeremy is one kind of hero. Mm-hmm. And if the letter is true, then it's really saying something else about heroes. Because Colleen Hoover is a romance author. This book has, like, her same, like, cover vibe and everything. So I think if it... It's not like when Alyssa, um, oh my God, I forgot her last name. Cole. Alyssa Cole wrote the non-romance novel, right? And she published it under her own name, but it was like totally different brand identity. Like this is the same. So I feel like whatever is in this, you know, packaging, whatever. I think packaging matters. It's like Bear has that romance novel cover because you have to think of it in that way in order to like get it, I think. (laughs) Like, you have to think about it in relation to romance novels to grasp it. And so, like, I think this book is to be understood in the larger Colleen Hoover canon. And if that's true, what is this book saying about the – which I understand she writes pretty complex male main characters. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is, like, neither are true, right? Like, the autobiography can't be fully true because, like, there's some, like, actual details that wouldn't function that way. Yeah. And the letter can't be fully true because, like, she's... Even if the letter is mostly true, she's still perpetrating a massive lie about being paraplegic and catatonic for a long time. Like, months. Yeah, I think like neither is true, but I think it's supposed to, I don't think you're supposed to walk away thinking neither is true. I think this is supposed to be like a scry. (laughs) Like you look into it and you take out whatever you have about romance novels and the heteronormative relationships they depict. Because like a big part of romance novels are, I think, romance novelists and the way we think about them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's why there's so much meta stuff that's like slightly obfuscated by the fact that they're writing suspense and not romance. That's interesting. I think this is a scry for romance novels and how you feel about them. And I think... Did you feel like one or the other was true when you got done reading it? Um, When I finished it, I was like, oh, this book wants me to think the last letter is true because it's like totally different tone-wise than the autobiographies. And there's always like... There's all this, like, insistence in it, like, of course writers aren't writing about themselves, you know? And I was like, well, it seems like thou doth protest too much. But then, like, as I was thinking about it and talking about it now here with you, I thought it was so interesting. I talked about it with one of our mutual friends who read it previously. And I was like, she told me when I when I bought the book, she was like, oh, I had it figured out right away. And I asked her, I was like, which ending did you have figured out right away? Because I believed everything like I read I'm very gullible and so I'm I'm great I'm great I enjoy suspense very much because I think it's all wonderful and shocking (laughs) but she was like oh that like Jeremy was actually the murderer or like that Jeremy was the bad guy and I was like how (laughs) 
amazing. I'm also like that. I mean, is he like two of his children are still dead and one under very suspicious circumstances? Yeah, exactly. And then I was like, well, I was like, first of all, I was like shocked that anyone saw what I understood as like a deus ex, that I was writing off as a deus ex machina. Someone understood that as predictable. And then I was like, oh shit, is it? Like, where was that? And then I was thinking, I couldn't pinpoint it, but I could find like, you know, the breastfeeding scene. Like the reason I brought that up with you when I was talking about triggers is because I was like, you know, it's upsetting because I like kind of identified with the villain in that moment. And then I was like, oh yeah, I identified with the villain. Is she the villain? That seems a lot smarter than what I was giving. And that's when I was like, oh, I think this might be a lot smarter than I was giving it credit for. I think I would, I would put this in the same space that I would put the Mistress of Melon. Right? That feels very appropriate. Where it's like, I wasn't, I was shocked, but I wasn't necessarily surprised by anything. And there were definitely shocking moments. It was interesting and like, I listened to it on Audible. It's an Audible original, y'all. Yeah, it's like, or it's an Audible exclusive. Uh, And the two women that they have narrating it are different enough Act, voice actresses to like create a kind of thing but like I much prefer Jeremy's voice in the Lowen actress to the version that Verity was doing which is weird <laughs> because like how women choose to like do a man voice in an audible uh, an, uh, an auditory book yeah is like it's a choice Oftentimes I think like less is more. And so the person who played Verity was doing like a very like a a very put on Jeremy voice. And so I was put off, which automatically made me hate Verity more. (laughs) But like, you know, the whole thing about her like wanting a nanny. Yeah. So relatable. And like her being like, we can afford it. And like, we need space. And like, we need time to be together. Like, all of those things... Insists on the idealized 21st century family thing. Where he's like, I'll just be the stay-at-home dad. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not the same thing as us being partners. Yeah. And that's not the same thing as, like, us making decisions together. Like, that's... The thing that tripped me up about Jeremy and Verity is that they're not making decisions together. But they've, they've, they've not been making decisions together from the outset of the autobiography. So then I'm like, is that Verity hiding herself because she's deeply wounded and traumatized and like a fucked up villain who doesn't trust? Or is it that, you know, Jeremy's the villain or are they both villains in their own mundane and shitty ways? I'm so glad you brought up Mistress of Melon because I think this book is very much playing with those classic gothic romance ideas. So if you don't, if if you're not super familiar with gothic romance, it's like romance before... Kathleen Woodowis before category, before Harlequin, right, was gothic romance. And they all had this same kind of hinging idea where, like, is the husband, is the lonely widower a murderer? No, it's actually the hot neighbor lady, right? And so it's always flipping, like, oh, you expect him to be the murderer? Well, guess what? She is, right? And this book is doing the reverse. It's doing a reverse gothic romance where it's like, oh, you expect him to be a loving family man and that she's some kind of like she devil? Well, guess again, right? Which is pretty interesting. 
And I think it is like point. I think this book is like pointing at gothic romance pretty directly with like creaky houses and like for some reason she never just like leaves on her own, <laughs> which makes more sense in historical gothic romance, right? Yeah, I mean this 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 felt like a very modern interpretation of like Bertha in the attic. Yeah, it feels like it's. I think it's definitely leaning on those traditions. Uh, Bertha in the attic exists in all of our um, collective unconsciousness. She does, and like in all the ways that I felt bad for Bertha, which the book didn't do enough to uncover, as we talked about in our Jane Eyre read along. I yeah. did feel bad for Verity at various points, especially when like I understood very early that she was pretending to be paraplegic, and I was like, it would suck to feel like you had to pretend and then listen to your husband that you are obsessed with to the point of insanity, fall in love and fuck another person in your house that you built. For him. And then he murders you. He chokes you to death. In the way that you were said to almost murder one of your babies in your autobiography. He kills you in the way as directed by his new lover. At By his new lover. And you are witness to it. Who is smarter than him. Just like you thought you were. And is also like you but younger and now potentially has the ability to be more successful and also hasn't had children as your as, as you. you she's ghostwriting as you yeah it's crazy it's a it's a hell verity ends up in a hell i want to do sexiest part weirdest part i want to go first because my sexiest part and my weirdest part are the same are the same oh god and it jives right off of what you just said about lowen okay so when lowen moves into the old master bedroom jeremy sleeps upstairs to be closer to crew in a separate room from verity but verity's room is also upstairs um, so Lowen moves into the main bedroom of the house and she notices on the wood headboard teeth marks and she immediately and I thought this was so weird. This is not the assumption I would make. She immediately assumes that like Verity was biting the headboard in sexual ecstasy, which like would not be my assumption. Not mine either. I would be like, oh, like a kid chewed this or something. I don't know. But then she reads the autobiography and she discovers that yes that is the case like uh verity would be sitting on his face and then bite the headboard so we get like a couple of explicit sex scenes in this book and one of them they have had sex the night before they wake up in the morning and then through a series of misadventures she ends up lowen ends up sitting on his face and I was excited, but I found that to be the sexiest part because I, you don't read that described very often. And it's very, it's very well done. Very good steam. It's not a particularly steamy book, but like the scenes that have steam do it well. But then <laughs> Lowen, seeing the teeth marks on the headboard, decides that she's going to make her own. And then one of her teeth like gets, I think this is how I remember it. This might be me showing my own fucked upness. Like one of her teeth like gets into Verity's tooth mark. But they're misaligned ever so slightly. So she's making a different distinct imprint where Verity's teeth had been. Yeah, but she's just doing very weird. I don't think I need to explain why that's weird or sexy. Super weird. Mm-hmm. What was your, are, are, yours are, I assume, two separate entities. <laughs> they are indeed. Yeah, this is like where there is sex in the book, it is very sexy. Um, 
even the weird fucked up sex scenes when I don't like either Jeremy or Verity were sexy. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the Verity and Jeremy sex scenes. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. I think the problem with like any time that I was like into a sex scene or thought that there was something really sexy happening, like when he gets back and she's written the book and there's like that whole sex scene, it comes on the heels of him ripping the manuscript out of her hand and her crying and him locking himself in the bathroom so that he can read it. I was like, that's not good. That's not good. I don't like that. But like the sex scene right before it and the sex scene right after it are very good. (laughs) but I hate the thing in the middle (laughs) yeah it's not a book that allows you that has comfortable sex yes they're titillating but they're not comfortable and not like oh this is edgy we're trying something new no just like the context is very uncomfortable which is romance meta commentary I guess that could be true because like the scene where she- if that's what this book is doing, I don't know if that's what this book is doing because like then it's like I don't either. But there's like things that could be it. There's <laughs> things that could not be it. I don't know because like one of the other sex scenes that stands out not for being sexy is like she's four weeks postpartum and he doesn't want to have sex with her because he's like you have to be cleared by your doctor, which makes perfect oh, sense God. because she had a cesarean section of twins. And then I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Longtime listeners will get this reference, but like there's a Bukowski reference in this book, and I was like, Morgan's gonna fucking love this. And then I was like, <laughs> The knife, the knife! Ugh. And then I was so fucking afraid that he was gonna fuck her cesarean wound because I had been like fucking Bukowski primed. And I, and I like the trigger warnings I didn't read, and I was like, Something terrible is gonna happen. That's much more David Cronenberg. Like, it is, it is very Bukowski in that he says he likes women who take it like a knife, and she talks about it feeling like being, it felt like being stabbed at first. But the idea of, like, fucking a wound is a very uh, David Cronenberg thing. So that was your sexiest part. And then what was your weirdest part? No, that wasn't wasn't it. It was mostly like, this is terrible. I hate everything about this. But you like the sex scene directly before and after he reads her manuscript. I did. My weirdest part... I guess the thing that she decides that she only loves one of the twins. Yeah. And then tries to kill the other one. That's hard to read. Yeah, it was hard. You know what else was weird? Crew. Crew was very weird. Also, don't, like, that's why, like, the last letter doesn't work for me. Because, like, there's too much truth in the autobiography for me to discount it. There's too much duplicity in Verity's actual behavior. Yeah. And there's honestly too much duplicity in the letter yes but there's also too much like duplicity in Lowen and like don't know how to really read Jeremy because he feels like good dad vapor when you said good dad vapor I thought you meant like who also vapes and I was like yeah exactly I really was like perfect (laughs) I mean he (laughs) he absolutely does vape and he like uses weird flavors I bet he is like a vape. I was told I once wrongly used vape as a metaphor. I will own up to it. But now I feel like, oh, it's not smoking. But is it? Isn't it? Yeah. Also, aren't you trying to just hook teens on nicotine? Because that's what now it seems like. like it's just like worse than smoking. Like it probably kills you and you look less cool. Way less cool. And you're annoying because you do it indoors and you think that's fine. 
Like, no one wants your vapor. Anyways. So, Womance or Nomance? It's a Nomance for me. Uh-huh. You wouldn't recommend it? I wouldn't because I feel like I've read books that are doing similar things. But I liked it enough that I would not be against reading another Colleen Hoover. Um, I would say it's a Womance. I would like more people to look into this scry. I don't think enough people are reading this from the perspective of, like, romance readers. And I think what you and I talking about it did for me is made me realize how many knots there are. Because it's like, it's not, like, that wasn't, like, the final letter feels, like, hacky. And then it's like, is that because it's bad or is that because it's supposed to be confusing? And if it's supposed to be confusing, like, to what end? And now I'm realizing that there's all these, there feels like, it feels like some of this is too specific to not be referential. And so I think it's saying something, it might not have said it clearly enough, but I would also say that this is like a beach read, like this whips through. If this is your, if you're into like scary beach weeds, if you can take scenes of extreme violence. Oh yeah. Like even if you're not into scary beach reads and I am not into scary beach reads, like I whipped through this thing. Like it is a true page turner. It was it was really hard to stop listening to at any point. That's a that's a time ants on the old Goodreads odometer. With that. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzac. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.